You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live here from the heart of Silicon Beach in Santa Monica, California with the Internet Law Center. And um, we have a very special show for you today. Um, We have with us Ross K. Baker, who's a professor at Rutgers University and has a new book out, Is Bipartisanship Dead? A report from the Senate. And um, so are you with us, Professor Baker? I sure am. Um, so that's a, quite a, a league to be in, you know, with the intro of uh, Kari Stremski and Kobe Bryant. Um, but your your topic is uh, much more serious and um, not as old um, in terms of is bipartisanship dead? And uh, your book um, is obviously going to be getting a lot of discussion, particularly in light of the election results. Um, mm-hmm. How do you think the election plays into your findings? Well, um, I uh, decided to look at bipartisanship in Congress by looking at the Senate. And I decided to the Senate for the same reason that Willie Sutton explained why he robbed banks. And that is, that's where the bipartisanship is. Uh, the House is not, by its very nature, a bipartisan institution. If you've got a solid 218 votes, and now the Republicans are going to have something like 242 votes, you can do pretty much whatever you want without taking into account the minority party. So the Democrats have a very, very, will have a very, very limited influence in this new 114th Congress. However, the Senate is different. The Senate is a place where smaller chamber, uh, the senators get to know each other 
better because they serve on many more committees together than House members do. And I interviewed six Democrats and six Republicans in the 113th Congress and asked them the question, is bipartisanship dead? And to a person, they said, no, it's not. Uh, and then they proceeded to give me examples of the kinds of bipartisan cooperation that they've been involved in with members of the other party. And some of the Democrats were pretty liberal, like Barbara Boxer from California. And, and some of the uh, Republicans are pretty conservative, uh, like uh, jo Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia. So what, what were they talking about? I mean, clearly the Senate hasn't been able to pass any bipartisan legislation. So where is all this good bipartisanship going? And the answer is that within the committees of the Senate, there's a lot of it. The problem is that when it gets out of the committees and onto the floor of the Senate, that's where the really intense partisanship cuts in. That's where uh, Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell come forth and basically plant the flag of the Democratic and Republican parties. Um, and much of what these uh, senators want to do in a, in a bipartisan way gets trumped by what the party leaders see is the... Uh, conflict between their bipartisanship and the needs of the, of the party base. For Reed, it's, it's uh, liberals, union people, environmentalists, and so on. For McConnell, it's industry and uh, religious conservatives. So uh, the problem is that so, so long as these folks are in their committees, uh, agriculture, armed services, environment, and, and public works, whatever, uh, they're fine. They get out on the floor, and the dynamic changes completely. So, um, the uh, obviously it, it's kind of a, an odd situation because you're talking about the committee structure, and committee chairs are appointed, and ranking members are appointed by party leadership, and and by the membership, and then they they clash with the the leaders that serve them. Is what you're saying? Well, that's interesting. You're right in a sense that, you know, that the Democrats currently in this Congress are the chairs of all the Senate committees. They will be Republicans in the next Congress. Uh, and they have these positions by reason of their party's majority. But right. they're also, these, these, uh, these committees are really, have jurisdiction over particular areas of policy. Right. I mean, the folks on the folks on the Armed Services Committee really have very close relationships with the Pentagon, with the defense contractors, with the aerospace industry, and so on. And uh, these are these are very long-standing ties that that really uh, are ties between these constituencies and the and the committees themselves. Like the Agriculture Committee, of course, has their constituency in agribusiness and farmers and so on. So the needs of these various groups may, and very often are, in conflict with the objectives of party leaders. So, for example, um, take Ted Kennedy. Um, what a lot of people didn't know was Ted Kennedy was on the Armed Services Committee because right, there were yeah, a lot of was. military installations in Massachusetts. And Correct. so um, someone like that, obviously, once you're, you, you, your committee base is also your fundraising base, would it not be? That's absolutely correct. And there's some committees in Congress that are known as money committees. <laughs> and they're known as money committees not because they spend it, but because they can gather in lots and lots of campaign right. contributions. And, and right. the granddaddy of that would be the Finance Committee, which um, I don't know whether it was the Senate Finance Committee or the House Ways and Means Committee. 
that you know, the corridor one, outside <laughs> is known as Gucci Gulch. You know, that's because exactly that's right. The, yeah, that's where the tax tax, tax code is written. Um, sure, sure. So basically, if I'm a senator on a money committee, I have to choose between satisfying the the constituency I serve, um, the constituency I have jurisdiction over, and Harry Reid or Mitch McConnell. And exactly right. uh, my electoral success may m- depend more on the first two than the latter. Uh, that's absolutely right. And I think that there are times in which uh, very loyal Democrats or very loyal Republicans have to uh, part company with their leadership because it's in conflict with what their constituents want. I mean, the constituents are the ones who are responsible for either sending them back to Washington for another six years or, or retiring them. And, and senators who, who stray too far from the needs of their constituents get into real big trouble. Uh, Pat Roberts, for example, in the most recent election, uh, uh, had developed a reputation of somebody who basically had gotten a terminal case of t- Potomac fever. Uh, you know, he didn't really have a, a legitimate voting address in Kansas. Uh, and really, the Republican Party had to come to his rescue because he was in very deep trouble. So senators have to understand that as much as they become policy experts and, and feel comfortable with their, uh, with their policy uh, uh, constituency and also with their party constituency, the bottom line for all of them is re-election. And re-election depends on satisfying the folks at home. And you know, you, your book starts off with an interesting tale um, Somewhat, maybe alarming. It's uh, what would seem to be a non-controversial vote, to the extent there is such a thing anymore, over um, ratifying a treaty for the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, um, and um, brought. And obviously, because it's a ratification vote, requires two thirds, and it had been been passed favorably with strong support from the Foreign Relations Committee, um, wheeled out to support the bill was um, former um, Republican Majority Leader and Minority Leader and Presidential Standard Bearer Robert Dole, you know, himself a disabled senator, uh, former senator and, you know, war hero. Um, and um, the vote failed. Yes, the vote failed. You know, it was, you know, what you call <laughs> colloquially a no-brainer. I mean, who could be opposed to a treaty that protected the rights of persons with disabilities, particularly because it imposed no costs or obligations on the United States? Um, the thing was that this was going to be used, this was going to use the United States as the gold standard for uh, accessibility to handicapped people. We are the best in the world. There's nobody better than we are in terms of. Uh, making sure we have curb ramps and getting people into public buildings and just making sure that the lives of, of disabled people are easier. So, uh, you know, this would have been, uh, this would have set up our standard for, for the entire world, and it wasn't ratified. And it wasn't ratified <clears throat> for some strange reasons, one of which is, candidly, the United Nations is toxic in the Congress of the United States. I, I, I don't think there's any organization, perhaps only ISIS, that's in worse odor than the United Nations. <laughs> it's a feeling that anything the United Nations does is an infringement on the sovereignty of the United States. So you start out with that 
uh, strike against it. Uh, and then you add to the fact that there was a lot of conspiracy theories that were circulating around that if the treaty were ratified, it would interfere with with the people who want to homeschool their children. It would interfere somehow have implications for uh, abortions and so on. And you know the internet was just buzzing with all kinds of crazy stuff about this about this 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 the treaty which had been reported out from the Foreign Relations Committee on a bipartisan vote. Uh, was co-sponsored by John McCain, a Republican in good standing by any measure, and John Kerry, who was about to become Secretary of State, uh, yet it failed. And it's an interesting thing because I you know I hear you hear different stories, and obviously you, you you're talking about the Senate versus the House because you know there's a famous quote from former House Majority Leader Dick Armey that bipartisanship is date rape. And um, so that the House definitely comes from with a different viewpoint, and then the Senate. You you have I, I hate to ref, you know, keep mentioning Kennedy, but I recall about it upon his passing, you know, the close relationship he had developed with Orrin Hatch, and in yeah. his eulogy he mentioned that you know I came to the Senate to um, to get rid of Ted Kennedy, and over time, <laughs> and, you know, eventually I failed, and I realized that was a good thing. And you know so they developed a warm relationship, and um, and when he died, you know Hatch actually hoped, but was somewhat pessimistic, I think, about you know maintaining civil relationships like that in in this kind of modern TV age. You know, I I just speak to older senators. Let me tell you about an incident that happened to me. Uh, I was having lunch in the Capitol with Senator Leahy. Uh, whose, whose staff I was, was on back, back in 2004 when I was on sabbatical. And he and I were having breakfast, and um, Chuck Grassley, the senior senator from Iowa, came by. Right. And, you know, it was sort of like two old fraternity brothers, kind of grabbing each other and punching each other in the arm and so on. And Grassley walked away, and, and, uh, and, and the lady said to me, and she said, there goes a real pro. There's somebody who I don't agree with on many things, but he's completely honest, smart, he's well-informed, and it's a pleasure to work with him. And, you know, but, you know, that's hard for, for many people to say in public. Right. Uh, because, because the public itself is so, is so polarized that, you know, a, a Democrat who, who prizes the, the friendship of a Republican or vice versa uh, is going to have to explain himself. To the to the party base, you know, you know the, the the liberal Democrats in the People's Republic of Vermont saying to Leahy, "What are you doing, palling around with this guy?" Or, or in the case of of, of Grassley, you know, geez, you know, Leahy's this liberal Democrat. Why is he your big buddy? Yeah, I'm sure Ben and Jerry's goes over well politically in Iowa, but um, <laughs> the the interesting thing is that um, I recall that when Gingrich came to power in '94 that one of the things he told members was not to spend time in Washington over the weekend. And I yeah. can and understand the, the political necessity of that. You, know, you need to go back to your base. You need to do your, your work. You need to be out there. You need to be seen. You don't need to be seen as a body of you know, something that's been captured by Washington. But that mm-hmm. part of that process was also preventing fraternization, which I think Gingrich also discouraged. And I'm wondering as you know, it's been now over you know twenty it's been 
I guess, 20 years now since the, that revolution. Um, right. And exactly 20 years. Are, are we seeing that that has somehow, because a lot of the people who you know, were in the House now have graduated to the Senate, um, mm-hmm. I mean, um, has that polluted really the, 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 the kind of relationship in the Senate? It's made it very hard. I, I think that the, the whole problem of campaigning and fundraising and so on has had a really devastating effect on relationships in, in, in Congress. Uh, that, that these members have to spend so much time on the phone. You can't actually, you know, you can't solicit funds from the, from the Capitol or from the House, House and Senate office buildings. You've got to go off campus to do it. Right. And both party organizations have set up offices on Capitol Hill uh, and members leave the, leave the, the campus and go into these townhouses and make telephone calls. Uh, that takes a lot of time. Um, it takes a lot of time from everything. It takes a lot of time from meeting constituents who happen to be in town. There was a time when if you, if you were you know, coming to town from Florida or you know, from California or someplace, you stood a pretty good chance of, of hanging out for a few minutes at least and having your picture taken if you're a member of Congress. Boy, that's, that's not easy to get anymore. You're lucky to get a staff member to shake hands with you. And I'm looking at an interesting um, stat. It's from Mother Jones. And it's how much each senator must raise an hour to sure. for their seat. And um, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, California is the most expensive of that that's listed here. This is a 2012 study. I guess they have people who are up then. But, you know, Barbara Boxer raises um, $2,444 an hour. Um, Mitch McConnell, seventeen hundred dollars an hour, and, and so if that's what you have to do, um, you know, of course, you know, you, you you have to dive in to all those other things, and you know, having a beer with you know Senator Grassley or um, you know um, doing whatever bizarre things Rand Paul may do um, is is not a priority, right? Well, you know, at least in the Senate, there is a, a little bit of ability to kind of work in these encounters uh, in the votes. See, uh, on, on the House side, the vote is by electronic ballot. So what you do is you, you come over from your office, uh, let's say in the Cannon Building, and you go over to the Capitol, you take out your car, you put it in the voting machine, you vote and you go back to your office. Right. In the Senate, it's by voice vote. Right. So you come over there, and senators have a chance to hang out in the chamber together. And that's where the conversations take place. That's where the deals get made. Uh, I mean, they're made other places as well. They're made in the gym. They're made, you know, simply by visiting other senators' offices. Uh, but or the it, monocle. it's hard. <laughs> right, or the monocle, right? <laughs> the, cra- the, cat- the crab cakes are great. <laughs> Yeah, some people actually do have food there, um, <laughs> but um, we we only have a, a, a few more minutes, unfortunately. But um, so tell us about. I mean, so you worked in you were um, you did a fellowship at the Andrzejewski community. Did you work with Ed Pagano, Pagano perchance? I certainly did. I know um, him very well, and I followed him when he went to the White House as congressional liaison to the as a White House liaison to the Senate. He's a great guy. Um, we worked together on Clinton in '96, but um, 
The um, you tell us about what you're doing at Rutgers. Well, I'm teaching the large introductory course in American government, which I've taught for the last 26 years, and love doing it. Um, I love doing it because I really want to get students interested in government and politics. I, I, I want to stimulate their interest in in participating. Uh, because, you know, you're dealing with kids who are going to be reasonably well-educated and will have a lot to offer. Uh, so I'm doing that. And then I'm also, um, uh, at the end of every semester, I ask, I have three teaching assistants because the class is so big, it's about 400 students, and I can't really get to know them very well. Uh, so I asked my, my TAs, I said, give me the names of 13 of those students, a baker's dozen, um, and I'm going to invite them to have the meat in my house, in my living room, to have coffee and bagels on a Wednesday morning uh, in, the, in the fall semester every other year. And we're going to talk politics. We're going to talk about the, uh, the federal election that's coming up. And uh, it's an opportunity for them to really get, to really learn more about, uh, about elections, about candidates, and particularly familiarizing themselves with elections in other parts of the country. So, uh, you know, most college students are very provincial. And this is an opportunity for a kid who grew up in New Jersey to, to track a bunch of elections in Oregon and Washington State. And, and you've been doing this 26 years. Has, are you noticing any change in terms of awareness or interest or... Um, or, or is it basically, you know, students are more or less approaching things the same day as they always have? Well, you know, I, I think that there was a period probably in the, in the 80s in which it seemed to me that the, a, a lot of the students really weren't as engaged. Um, that, that really, uh, not, not so much as in, let's say, in the 70s, late 50s and 70s. Um, I think students really are interested, um, but uh, you know, there used to be uh, there used to be a kind of benefit that we gained from pre-laws from people who were preparing to go to law school, who would take political science uh, under the faulty theory that somehow it helped you in law school. But we benefited from it, and that's changed because very few of my students are going to law school these days. I mean, I used to write literally dozens of letters of recommendation, and I, I think I've written I've written three this semester. Wow. I mean, I, I followed that path in, in the eighties when people weren't paying attention, as you say, and um, right. and, and, went, and went to law school. But um, so, if people want to find more information about you and you know, the program at Rutgers, where should they go? Well, you can go to the website, um, which is www.rutgers.edu, uh, and they're going to give you a list of programs to click on, and you know, um, ours is political science. Uh, or you can just go directly to our, to our department website, which is www.politicalscience.rutgers.edu, and uh, learn about the the, uh, the programs that we have, and also about our faculty. And uh, we have a display of the books that our faculty members have written, and it's a uh, really pretty pretty good site. Um, three quick questions. Um, first, who is your your hope, your your great hope for bipartisanship in the Senate today? Um, two, uh, what's your next book? And three, what do you think about your governor's chances for 2016? <laughs> Question number one. I hope that Mitch McConnell is as good as his word, uh, that he really wants to bring the Senate back to what it was at the time that Mike Mansfield, uh, the famous 
Democratic leader was the uh, was the majority leader. Uh, it was one in which the committees did real work. There, that there was a realistic chance that what the committees did might be enacted. Uh, it's it's a nice thought, uh, but we'll see. I think it remains to be seen whether that's even possible these days. Um, so that's that that's my hope, and and and, and it really is in his hands as the new majority leader. Yes. That was your second question. <laughs> the second question is, what's your next book? That's a, that's a that's a good question, and and I, frankly, I just got done writing this one, so I'm sort of <laughs> sort of in the in the uh, uh, in, in the ebb tide of that of that project, and you know, and making a lot of appearances, and and of course, the other thing is the election came off so quickly on right. the heels of the book being published, and you know, I've been swamped by people asking for interviews. Um, so that that's the answer to that question. And the all right, third then was, number three, which I'm sure you're getting asked all the time, is your governor's chances in 2016. Well, you know, can Mister sit was, down and shut up, be president? <laughs> yesterday had some good points and some bad points for Governor Christie. The, the good points were as as the president of the Republican Governor Association, he had a lot of conspicuous wins in unlikely places. I mean, he, Sam Brownback held on in Kansas, Rick wow, Snyder in something. Michigan. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, you know, he got, uh, another term for the Republican governor of, of, of Georgia, Nathan Deal. And then so, Massachusetts, yeah, he did, he did Maryland. Well, but, but, but the, yeah, right, Mar- most unlikely place, Maryland. Yeah. Uh, the bad news is Scott Walker was reelected. Uh, and Scott Walker, of course, really, he, he and Christie kind of occupy the same political position uh, in the Republican Party in turn, looking ahead to the 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, you know, they're both, they're, they're both governors from bluish states uh, who are kind of more centrist than, than, than most Republicans, um, and uh, they're going to have to fight it out. Well, we'll definitely have to watch that. Well, thank you very much. The book is um, is Bipartisanship Dead, a report from the Senate from Professor Ross Baker. It's been a pleasure. Thank, 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 you, thank you for some very, very probing and, and intelligent questions. It's been a pleasure. Say hi to Ed for me. I will be happy to do that. Bye-bye. Thank- Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investments. 
also light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report. And so we have one of the preeminent um, experts and um, journalists and when it comes to tax uh, policy and um, it's, it's maybe abuse um, and um, Pulitzer Prize winning author David K. Johnson. And he's, um, we have him um, from his home in New York. Are you with us? I sure am. Um, I want to thank you for joining us. And um, David came to prominence, I think, from through the New York Times where he was its tax reporter and he won a Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for his um, penetrating and enterprising reporting that exposed loopholes and inequalities in the U.S. tax code. And that, that I'm assuming that also what led to your book, Perfectly Legal, The Covert Campaign to Rig Our Tax Systems? Yes, it was the, actually the three books. It was a trilogy I've just finished. The first one, Perfectly Legal, is about taxes and it won the investigative book of the year award the second book in the series free lunch which came out five years ago is about subsidies to very wealthy people that uh, very few people knew about and then my current book which came out last september the fine print is about restraint of trade and the rise of monopolies duopolies and oligopolies uh, and the the damage done both to smaller businesses and trying to compete and to consumers and and that's through the fine print in various legal documents, correct? Absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't know anything about that whatsoever. Um, Nobody reads it unless they get paid to read it. Um, there's a famous instance, and in, um, you may re- you probably heard or familiar with, and um, two years ago on April Fools, a, a UK game site um, called GameStation or GameStop. Actually, oh, uh, yeah, they offered $3,000 to the first person who spotted the thing that said, email us and we'll give you $3,000, the equivalent of $3,000. Oh, no, that was another one. This That's one, about what I wanted to have. Somebody finally did, but it was like months after they put it up on the web. No, this one was just for one day, and it was more creative um, and more sinister, which means they had the lawyers involved. And <laughs> um, it, it re- basically said that you had two options. You can um, register. And um, in which case you are transferring us in perpetuity an option to your eternal soul, or um, <laughs> you can opt out and get the equivalent, you know, and get um, five pounds. And I think it was in the neighborhood of twelve people opted out. Twelve, twelve percent, twelve percent opted out. And, and took and five so, pounds. 
And I always thought that, you know, if they really were serious about the prank, that the, the next year they sh- for April Fool's, they should have opened up a soul division. But, um, <laughs> so now, now well, I'm- you know, Rich, Judge Richard Posner, who is, I think, without question, the most widely read uh, jurist in the country from all of his books and, and articles, uh, uh, told a legal conference a couple of years ago, and I recount this in the free print, in the free fine print, that when he was refinancing his home, uh, he said, "I didn't read; I just signed." True. And so, if Richard Posner doesn't read the fine print, then of course all sorts of things get buried in there that we're just not aware of. Now, I'm sure that happens in an in in alarming rate. But um, also alarming is I've seen that. Um, for example, Apple is sheltering up to a billion dollars a week offshore through um, various concoctions known as the the Ireland, the Irish, and the double back to the Virgin Islands. There's all these. The, well, it's called the the uh, uh, it's called a, a double Dutch sandwich uh, with Irish in between. Um, yes, one of the most important and least understood trends in the U.S. Uh, that's damaging the FISC, the, the Treasury, and is in 1986, as part of the Tax Reform Act, Reagan signed a provision that repealed the excess retained earnings section of the tax code if you had the money offshore. And, and just for our listeners, excess retained earnings, what would that be? Well, uh, Congress, since the corporate income tax began in 1909, has always had a rule, it's changed from time to time, but it's always had a rule that says you cannot hold on to more cash and near cash, things like uh, today money market funds or right. treasury notes, then you need reasonably to operate your business. Otherwise, a corporation would just become a giant bloated tax shelter and profits that are earned, instead of being recirculated through the economy through dividends, uh, salaries, purchase of new equipment, further investment, would be effectively stuffed into a mattress. And this 1986 rule said, well, exception doesn't apply provided that you have the money offshore, which, of course, means mom and pop and purely domestic businesses are sort of out of luck. And what happened after the passage of that law is that immediately American companies began selling their intellectual property rights, the logos for uh, a hotel's signs, uh, their their patent uh, their pat- their patents for drugs, the manu- the the manufacturing process they have that's exclusive, the thing that makes, for example, and I don't know if this one applies, but all Thomas's muffins are alike and they're all different from everybody else's. They began transferring from their American companies to offshore subsidiaries and tax havens. Then they start paying these subsidiaries royalties, and that turns profits earned in the United States into tax-deductible expenses held offshore. And so long as that money is not brought back as profits, there's no tax on it. And while in theory you can't borrow that money, you actually can. What companies do is they set up laddered loans from themselves, so they borrow a billion dollars this week from Cayman Islands subsidiary number 47, and then they repay it, and they borrow a billion dollars the same day from subsidiary number 82. So they do get the money back to use it, and but it, it grows untaxed. 
And it, it, it seems, you know, when I hear that, and I've heard things, similar um, things described before, it seems that the tax code is divorced from um, economic reality. That in, in a but-for world where you're not making decisions based on tax, um, that transaction would never happen. That's exactly right. Uh, th- this is entirely mining the tax code and mining the treasury. And one of the lessons that business has learned since 1980 especially, uh, and that we've seen, you can document through the explosion of the growth of the tax code and the number of lobbyists of all kinds in Washington, is that it is easier to mine the public treasury for gold than to earn profits in the marketplace. And so we have all of these devices that have been stuck into the law, and I get told about new ones all the time, and there are many of them you can't find unless you know who put in this section unrelated to that section somewhere else, unrelated to two words somewhere else, that create tax favors for various uh, corporations or or, um, industries. It's it's amazing. And um, the idea, I mean, the, and it's ironic, you're citing the 1986 law, which was introduced to simplify our tax system. Um, yeah. And, you, and basically you're saying it created a fantasy land and playground for um, creative tax accountants. Well, the Tax Reform Act in some ways was, was very good law. What's happened now is we've had uh, 25 years of lobbyists working their way through it to undo uh, what was originally planned. I mean, there's certainly problems we can see now with the 1986 Act. The, the Probably the most widely understood one is the alternative minimum tax under which uh, if you get cancer or you're someone in your family gets cancer or some other very expensive illness, Congress in some cases, literally raises your taxes by reducing how much you're allowed to deduct for your medical expenses. I, that, that, that is the definition of an immoral tax. And right. since I first exposed that back in 1999 when I was at the New York Times, more than 100 members of Congress have in various forums said that's wrong, but, you know, nobody's done anything to fix it. By the way, the money's very small. It's about fifth, the best estimate we've been able to come up with is about $50 million a year that costs taxpayers because so few people are affected. But if something only costs $50 million, why can't you why do it? Yeah. I mean, I always thought that the, 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 they always index the AMT, or, or they don't index the AMT. I feel well, they, temporar- they, they temporarily index it, and, and uh, that was one of the tricks of the Bush administration. When George W. Bush came in, he wanted $1.8 trillion in tax cuts, and the Senate was only willing to give him one point three. So the way they achieved it was they approved the 1.8, and then they took back uh, what turned out to be more than the difference through the alternative minimum tax, which is essentially a tax on uh, two-income families who own their house and have uh, more than two children and live in the high-tax states, which is to say that states that pay high wages. Um, it is often misdescribed in the, in the news media, and, and I've tangled with my former employer, the New York Times, over this. They describe <laughs> it as a law originally imposed to address investors or, or just wealthy people who were piling on deductions. That law was repealed in 1986. That was called the minimum tax and replaced with this wholly different law that is essentially the most anti-family law in the country. But all the politicians in both parties who get up and tell you, 
I'm here for the American family. They won't do anything to fix that because it's a real moneymaker. And, and so was AMT, the, as distinct from the minimum tax, was AMT added on for revenue purposes? Yes. When they, the, the promise of the 86 Act was something called revenue neutrality. We're not right. going to raise any more money into the new system than into the old system. And when they plugged all the numbers into the Treasury Department's computer, they came up short $1 billion. And uh, so they thought this would be, uh, this would fix it. It would raise about a billion dollars. Purely by happenstance, because I didn't cover taxes in those days, I got hit with it in, it took effect in 87. (laughs) I got hit with it in 1988 because I was involved in litigation over an investment property and the, the, that made the litigation expenses in theory tax deductible, except under the AMT they weren't. So I wasn't Mm. able to deduct the, this, any of the business costs I had. Um, and so I became aware of it, but I didn't write about it until I found a family who really illustrated the problem. And I got a perfect family, uh, a couple in, uh, a, a lawyer in, uh, rural Kansas. They have 15 children. They're Presbyterians who don't believe in birth control. And one of their sons had cancer. And I got their tax returns, which they made so little money, $90,000, and they have 15 children, uh, that uh, uh, they had to pay this tax. I put their tax returns for several years into TurboTax, completely replicated them. They had done them by hand to save money, and then analyzed them by adding and removing children to see what happened. We did a whole chart showing how just having 15 children put them into the alternative minimum tax and then the medical bills to keep their son alive, who's now a grown-up and uh, his cancer, his childhood cancer has gone away, um, uh, raised their tax and their federal income tax bill. Wow. And um, it looks like that. <laughs> yeah, I know that the uh, 86 Act was, was given life at the, the Dubliner Pub and, and D.C. and, and Capitol. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe they spent a little too much time there. It seems, but um, well, it was it, 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 fundamentally it was pretty good law. I mean, it has some unintended negative consequences. The AMT is one. Um, uh, it, but what has happened since then is. This incredible gaming of the system. Um, now, I write for Tax Analyst, the nonprofit premier tax publisher of tax news in the country. But there's an organization called CCH that does uh, yes. technical tax manuals and things. And by their count, the tax co- system broadly defined, that is the statutes, the IRS manual, revenue rulings, private letter rulings, all of that that they put in their publications, it's grown 80% since 1995. The manual. 80%. The total amount of pages has grown 80% in the last 18 years. And, you know, this is not about you and me and most of the people listening to this. The, the expansion of the tax code is because of these uh, basically rents sought by uh, very big companies and very wealthy individuals who um, hire lobbyists, and, uh, you know, uh, I contend that they actually own Congress. Some people think that's a little too strong. Okay, so they buy congressmen now and then for short periods of time. <laughs> they Which rent they them now do, and then. They, they deduct, um, and they have a, a, net, a, a carry forward um, if they don't get elected. But um, it, it's I, I actually, I've worked with lobbyists in, in Washington, and I, I don't take that cynical a view. But I, I'm, I'm 
what I've been troubled by is that this growing use of offshore, and particularly you know, we in the tech industry and Apple being the kind of the the model company supposedly um, it has and along with and others are now following suit just enormous sums offshore which um, at one hand they're, they're using a court system and to get a, a record patent verdict and um, they, they want uh, us to uh, amend our immigration laws so that we can um, have more um, educated um, graduate students but they're not paying into the system because it's all going offshore well, this this is a, a re, this is the real fundamental problem. Um, unfortunately, over the last thirty years, and remember that's long enough now that the whole politics of the country have changed. Um, I, I always in my lectures, I always say there are two dates that matter to understand America today: nineteen eighty and thirty seven. Nineteen eighty was the year Ronald Reagan was elected and took the country in a whole new direction. Whether you like him or don't like him, he changed the country. And 37 is the median age. Half of Americans are older and half are younger. Well, I'm sorry, uh, 37, if you were born 37 years ago, you don't know anything about, from your own experience, the world before Reaganism began, mm-hmm. which we're still in. Obama is uh, maybe Reagan-lite, but he's a, a, a Reaganite. And the um, uh, this has totally changed our views of things in this country. And so what corporations now, and it's not all corporations, there are 6 million corporations in America, but 2,600 of them own over 80% of the assets. That's .00043% own over 80% of the assets. They're the ones who are gaming the system. And... Uh, they are building up these huge amounts of money offshore. It's, uh, by my count, about $3.4 trillion. Now, a lot of that money, by the way, is here in the U.S. They deposited an account with Chase Bank in New York, but the statement for that account will say, you know, uh, tax haven subsidiary number 416, Bermuda, or the Cayman Islands, or Switzerland, or Singapore, wherever they've put the money. And so it's even a fiction that it's, it's offshore. And this has several negative effects. It, you, you can track the uh, – I'm actually building a, a, a spreadsheet right now with the help of uh, one of my graduate students uh, showing that you can track the decreasing number of jobs in America on one line and the rising amount of cash offshore, and they parallel pretty well. That doesn't mean they're cause and effect, but, but they're correlated. And it leads to – uh, encouraging risk-averse behavior by CEOs. Something like um, 22% of the money uh, raised through stock offerings in the 60s and 70s was savings, and the rest was immediately used to build a new factory or invest in research and expand the company. Today, it's the reverse. About 75% of the money from new stock offerings gets stuck in the bank. I don't know about you, but I don't buy stock in companies so they can put it in the savings account at the bank. I can put my own money in the savings account at the bank. I don't need to pay them an overhead charge for it. No, one thing I know it leads to is a, is a commercial break, but we'll be right back <laughs> with Pulitzer Prize-winning author um, David Johnston on, and more on perfectly legal and other tax issues after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know they're SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PVC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. ShipStation helps online retailers ship orders faster. It's so easy to set up and use. ShipStation gives you tools to automatically import, manage, and ship your orders in the most cost-efficient way. Save money with the best USPS rates possible, as well as a free USPS account. ShipStation integrates with all the most popular e-commerce platforms and shipping carriers. Get shipping done no matter where you sell or how you ship. WebmasterRadio.fm listeners get an additional 30 days free after the free 30-day trial. Go to ShipStation.com slash WebmasterRadio now. Shipping Nirvana starts here. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report. And we're back with Pulitzer Prize-winning author David K. Johnston. Um, David, are you still with us? I sure am. And, um, so it's interesting. We were talking before the break just about the, the, the extent of the... Um, your offshore income being being shipped in, and and its effect on economic activity, or at least its correlation. And uh, so, do you really think that basically the the monies, or is it, or just as a fair assumption that the monies that are going offshore could be contributed to the economy and aren't, and we're suffering oh, accordingly? I, 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 but not only I firmly believe that. Earlier today, I was taking speaking to the head of one of the biggest accounting firms in the country, and he was agreeing with me about it. Uh, Friday night, I was on PBS NewsHour with Douglas Holzeekin, who was the chief economic advisor to Mitt Romney and was a George W. Bush White House economic advisor. And he was fundamentally agreeing with me about the principles of this. And remember, that's the corporate side. We also have these huge amounts of money that individuals are putting offshore, although in many cases they have a business that's just an alter ego for them. And we had the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists got this leak of data that appears to come heavily from uh, Singapore showing that, for example, the number two guy in the uh, French, uh, what we would call Treasury Department, after repeated denials, actually had a huge cache of untaxed money stuffed away offshore. I mean, this is not everybody by any means is doing this, but lots of people are, and government can stop it. It chooses not to stop it. And I I guess uh, I, I seem to recall... After Line 11, um, Stanley Tools um, moved, which had been based in um, 
New Britain, Connecticut. I was thinking, I, I was wasn't sure it was Middletown or New Britain. I knew. Yeah, my and, and Stanley Stanley Works CEO, who was an acolyte of uh, Jack Welch, he had been a high executive at GE. He had this plan to move the company uh, on paper only to Bermuda, and I calculated that he would have it would have increased if his own projections of what it meant to the company worked. It was worth three hundred eighty three million dollars in additional pay to him. Um, he did not get to do it because he rigged the election. And if there, there are a lot of things that the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission may fail at. It may not, you know, pay attention when Bernie Madoff gets reported to him. But if you rig a shareholder election, that's one that they uh, they, they stand up on. And uh, Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut, then the Attorney General, went after him over this, and they never did actually on paper move. But other companies did. Ingersoll Rand. Uh, makes you know compressors and all sorts of heavy machinery. Uh, they did uh, move their company headquarters on paper, meaning literally they just rent a mailbox and pay right. the pay the Bermuda government about twenty six thousand dollars a year. And as a result, they save. They estimated they were going to save thirty to forty million dollars a year in taxes they wouldn't pay the uh, federal government. But it seemed that, um, and maybe it was just the PR spin, but. Stanley Tools retreated because uh, it, this was right after 9-11. Right. And there was just a huge PR backlash. and But it seems that now that there's no shame in it. And, oh, that's you know, worn off. Yeah, that's worn off entirely. There is uh, I, the, 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 the only thing that's really changed, and there are people who either blame me or credit me with this, depending on their point of view, um, is that surveys taken in the early to mid-'90s up to the the late 90s, showed that the public did generally sort of thought the tax system was okay. They had rather mild criticisms about it. Now it's clear the overwhelming majority of Americans in survey after survey believe the tax system benefits the rich and comes at the expense of most people. That's been the change. But the details of it, that's something else, and it certainly has not affected the Republican leadership on Capitol Hill who are still pushing the same old, same old, which is essentially lower taxes for those who have had the greatest gain because they are in the United States. And um, it seems that as this progresses when, and to the point that you know, we have Apple you know, trying to blackmail the U.S. government saying, well, we'll bring the money back if you give me a tax holiday. Right. Um, have these companies, given the size of and their the size of their wealth and the, the, these tax systems, have they become almost nation states of themselves? Oh, they, sure, yes. And, and the idea of an American company that actually will sometimes think of American interests, you know, like Ford, you know, or, you know during World War II and converting production to the war effort. I mean, is that a, is that notion entirely gone? Um, the, the, this idea that you're an American company has, is really on the wane. It's not true everywhere. But you remember, while the Twin Towers were still burning, uh, one of the big four accounting firms, and I forget which one now, had a webinar for its clients that I got a copy of and, and put, in, put on the New York Times website where a partner at the firm said, encouraging companies to do this Bermuda mailbox deal, um, that patriotism should take a back seat to profits and even mentioned you know the 9-11 attack i mean that's how how callous this has become and you know the, the simple fact is you cannot continue to be wealthy in a sick society 
You've got to have a healthy society if you want it to endure. And the invention of progressive taxation and its moral basis is what gave birth to democracy in Athens 2,500 years ago. This is what I teach in the law in the graduate business school now at Syracuse University. And this has been largely lost. The idea that taxes are theft, that you get nothing for your taxes, has become remarkably pervasive. I actually had a a student, when I spoke at Yale a few years ago, say to me, so what do they do with all these taxes? Is it it like the garbage in New Jersey? Do they take it out in the the middle of the Atlantic and open up the bottom and dump the money? And I have to tell you, my first thought was, and I hear I always thought you had to be smart to get into Yale. Uh, we have a pre- recent president that went there, so uh, think twice on that one. But yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's just, yeah, it's astounding. I'm, but I know you're short on time, and um, you you have another engagement. But I want to thank you for joining us. This is a very important debate, and it's not just about um, Apple or other Facebook or Google's offshore account. It's really about. Um, what what is our role as citizens, in even as businesses, and um, I think that that gets lost in this debate. And um, you know, in a week when we have a horrific event, when you see people come together as citizens, you know, maybe this is a good time to talk about it. But I want to thank I, you for. I, your, I hope so. Thank you. I want to thank you. Good luck with your book, and um, I'll, I'll shoot you the information about the uh, the. The selling the soul. Um, uh, I didn't sell That's mine. Great. I quit it. I'm a lawyer. It's already been leased. But uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Bye bye. And one of David K. Johnson, Pulitzer Prize winning author. And um, so it was really quite a, a coup to get him for today. This is Bennett Kelly from broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center in Santa Monica, California, the heart of Silicon Beach. Looking forward to talking to you next week. Um, courts adjourned. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.webmaster. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.